Hey folks, welcome back to the water cooler. We're coming at you with something different today. It's just me on the mic for this one, and we're going to be doing a movie review for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So when me and Levi started the water cooler, we envisioned it as the latest in sports entertainment. And so far, two years in, we've been giving you a lot of sports and not a lot of entertainment. So we're looking to remedy that by starting to do some movie reviews, TV show reviews, and updates into the world of TV, movies, and all that good stuff. So I figured what better way to get started into our entertainment half of what the water cooler is supposed to be than by starting with Indiana Jones, one of the most iconic movie franchises of all time. So Indiana Jones recently made its return to the box office after an over 10-year hiatus with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So the Dial of Destiny has been out for about a month and so far reviews are pretty mixed. I just saw it yesterday and I've got to say it's probably the weakest installment in the franchise but we'll get to all that later. First I'll give you the background of the franchise. So the first three Indiana Jones movies all came out in the 80s. Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981 and is considered one of the greatest movies of all time. Directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by George Lucas. The first three movies are basically cinema history. Temple of Doom came out in 1984 to not as good of reviews as Raiders of the Lost Ark, but still a lot of people love it. And finally, The Last Crusade came out in 1989, and it was considered as good if not better than Raiders and once again one of the greatest movies that have come out in the last 50 years. So that was seemingly the end of the franchise until 2008 when Steven Spielberg came back to direct one last Indiana Jones movie. Steven Spielberg did not direct The Dial of Destiny but in 2008 they released Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal School two very mixed reviews people criticize this unrealistic plot point such as famously indiana jones surviving a nuclear blast by hiding inside a refrigerator but as a kid i saw this in theaters and i enjoyed it so i can't argue with the critics but i think indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal school was a decent movie not as good as the originals but it's fun if you don't think about it too hard. And that's pretty much how I feel about this movie. So, the movie kicks off in the end of World War One, 1944-45 range, and Indiana Jones is on a secret mission to infiltrate Nazi headquarters and steal the Holy Lance. Which, for those of you who don't know, the Holy Lance is a real legendary object, which sounds like a weird words to put together real and legendary so the story of the bible where jesus is being crucified there is a roman who pierces his side and famously water spurts out and not blood and that lance that the roman used to pierce jesus's side has become known to history as the holy lance it's up there with the holy grail in terms of significant historical artifacts and legend has it that any person who possesses the Holy Lance 
cannot be defeated in battle. There's been a series of historical people that, uh, for a better word, Holy Lance truthers claim possessed the object, such as Attila the Hun. And some people even say the Nazis had it in World War II, which is where, of course, Indiana Jones is pulling that narrative from. So Holy Lance, basically, it's a spear point that is given magical powers after piercing the side of Jesus, and you cannot lose, theoretically, in a war if you possess this lance. It's basically like, if you're a fan of Harry Potter, the Elder Wand. That being said, the Holy Lance has nothing to do with this movie outside of the first 10 minutes. So Indiana Jones is on a mission to capture the Holy Lance from the Nazis. He's captured and once again miraculously survives an explosion from uh, allied forces that are also attacking the German HQ while Indy is making his secretive operation to get the Holy Lance. And honestly, it's kind of a ridiculous scene how everybody else in the room aside from Indiana Jones manages to get killed in this explosion. And it's stuff like that in movies that really takes you out of the suspension of disbelief and it just kind of makes you shake your head. Uh, there are so many better ways they could have portrayed that scene. At least have Indiana Jones escape the room before the bomb goes off. But it's silly. It's dumb. Just If you're watching the movie, try your best not to think too hard. Indiana Jones is what I like to call a popcorn movie. Where you just, you get it, you eat your popcorn, and you don't think too hard about what's happening. But scenes like this are where the criticisms of the movie come in. The original Indiana Jones, especially Raiders of the Lost Ark, for all of their mystical elements, Indiana Jones himself is treated like an actual human who can be hurt, who can die. And whenever you have scenes like this where he's surviving in the Kingdom of the Crystal School, a nuclear blast, or like here, he survives a massive explosion that kills everybody around him but him. It just takes away from the fun and the realism of the movie. Because yes, we all know Indiana Jones isn't going to die, but if you take out scenes like this and you present it in a more realistic way, there's that slight thought in the back of your head that maybe he could. Which, I mean, obviously we know he doesn't because this is a flashback scene. But still, stuff like this just makes him seem less human, less real. And it makes it harder to believe later on in the movie that he could actually suffer serious harm. But anyways, he escapes from his imprisonment in the Nazis. And the Nazis themselves are trying to escape the Allied attack by jumping on a train. Indy and his... Uh, sidekick Dr. Bolin Basil uh, follow the Nazis and infiltrate the train as well. Basil was actually kidnapped by the Nazis so I guess he didn't really infiltrate the train more as he was kidnapped and the Nazis are trying to get intel on Indiana Jones as they're aware that he was you know, trying to do a secret operation. They're questioning Basil. And all the while they're doing this, Mads Mikkelsen's character, Dr. Voller, is telling the Nazi high command on the train 
that the Holy Lance itself was a forgery and that it's a waste of time to be focusing in on the Holy Lance because there is a more important object that is worthy of interest from Hitler and the Nazis. That object, of course, being the Dial of Destiny. And here's where we get somewhat of a preview as to what the movie is going to be about. Basically, Dr. Voller thinks that the Dial of Destiny allows you to become a god, as he says. It allows, as we find out later, it allows the person wielding it to have the ability to time travel. Which, of course, we all know is what every franchise needs is a time travel story. At this point, time travel stories are so overdone in major movie franchises, and they usually never end well, but here Indiana Jones is trying his hand at it, and it, eh, that's the best I can say about how it does it, eh. So we jump forward to the present day, 1969, as far as the movie's concerned, and we see Indiana Jones, who is drunk, divorced, and his son, Shia LaBeouf, from the last movie, is dead, who apparently died in Vietnam to get back at his dad. And it is his son's death that led to his separation from his wife, Marion, which sounds to me like a fancy way of saying they didn't want to bring Shia LaBeouf back for the movie, which is a gripe I have about a lot of movies when like the main character is an action hero is what they'll do is they'll try to give him a love interest or a family to raise the stakes to make him seem like the everyman but at the same time they can't have a family man going around traveling to Greece or you know Egypt or wherever it is Indiana Jones is going in his movies so he has a family and a love life, but they always have to put them on the shelf for the movie. It's the same way with Mission Impossible, how in like Mission Impossible 3, Tom Cruise gets a wife, and then she's not to be mentioned in the next movie, and then the one after that, they come up with a reason for why you didn't get to see her. It's just a constant battle between, we want Indiana Jones to have fun adventures, but we also want him to seem human and to have a family. And so it's constantly them trying to both incorporate Indiana Jones's family into the story, but also give him an excuse to get away from them to go do his adventures. And it just gets exhausting after a while when you watch them. It's like, what's the point in getting invested in his personal life when the directors of the movie clearly don't care and will just rotate around his personal life to make an excuse to have him do a solo mission. And I really don't see why they didn't just bring Shia LaBeouf back and continue the story from Kingdom of the Crystal School where his son follows in his father's footsteps and they go on a really cool adventure together, kind of like Indiana and his father did in Last Crusade. And maybe they could have ended this movie with Harrison Ford passing on the mantle of archaeologist adventurer to his son Shia LaBeouf. But that's not where they went. Instead, Shia LaBeouf is dead, and Indy's young new sidekick is played by 
Basil's daughter, Helena. Now, this is another problem with movie franchises where there's a 42-year gap between the first movie and the most recent movie. And that's that most of the actors from the original movies are too old to still be in the movies. Now, they do have some callbacks. They bring back Marion at the end of the movie, who's Indiana Jones's separated wife. They bring back his Egyptian friend. But for the most part, they have a new cast of characters, which includes Dr. Basil. So, if we're to be believed that Indiana Jones had a best friend in the 40s that he was so tight with that Dr. Basil made Indiana Jones the godfather for his daughter, Helena. But we never once hear this man mentioned at all in the last four Indiana Jones movies. It's just silly. It's like they didn't go back and rewatch their own movies before they made this one. Okay, it's unrealistic. It comes out of nowhere. But it's whatever. And at least with Top Gun Maverick, when they wanted to have a new love interest in that movie than in the original Top Gun, because the love interest from that movie actually aged and didn't have all kinds of plastic surgery done like Tom Cruise. They went back and watched the first Top Gun, where there's a one sentence mentioned about Tom Cruise's ex-girlfriend Peggy, and guess what? Peggy is the love interest in the second movie. So they went back, watched the movie, took one line, and made it a major plot point in the sequel. That's smart. That's what you should do when you're making a sequel to a movie or movies, is go back and watch the preceding movies. I mean, is it the end of the world that they brought in some new character who was never before mentioned and made him Indiana Jones' best friend? No, it's not, but it is just one example of Hollywood ignoring his past movies, just assuming that the audience won't care or won't notice. And it's kind of annoying, but it is what it is. So for the rest of the movie, we just assume that Indiana Jones was absolute best friends with Dr. Basil, and he was really tight with Dr. Basil's daughter Helena growing up, to the point where he even gets a pet nickname for her, where he calls her Wombat the whole movie, though it's never explained why he calls her this. So in the present day, we see Indiana Jones teaching a class about, guess what, the Dial of Destiny. Now they refer it, they refer to it as this Greek name, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Well, okay, I'll give it a shot. It's called the Antikythera, but I'm just going to call it the Dial of Destiny. Anyways, he's teaching his class, and he asks if anybody's done the reading, which of course they hadn't, because what college student actually does their assigned readings? And the only person who does is, of course... Helena, which he doesn't put together who it is yet because he hasn't seen her in years, so apparently Indiana Jones, not only a good father or a good husband, not a good godfather either. So she, of course, knows all kinds of stuff about the dial because her father researched it like crazy, and she's the only one in the class who knows anything about it. Now we cut to another person in the class who seems very amazed 
and interested in what Helena is saying about the dial, but she doesn't become important until about 10 minutes later. Anyways, we cut to after class. They're having a retirement party for Dr. Jones, the professors are, and as he leaves his retirement party, he is ambushed, not literally, but just he, she, Helena runs up to him after class, tells him who she is, and they go get lunch. She spends the entire lunch essentially pitching him as to why he should help her find the Dial of Destiny. So, after they escaped from the Nazis, who I should add in at this point, the big escape from the Nazis involves Mad Mickelson's character in Indiana having a showdown where... Mad Mickelson's character gets knocked down, they're on a train, they're fighting, and there's a steel post that hits him in the face and knocks him off a cliff. And you know it's Mad Mickelson, so you know he's going to be a main character. But the fact that that doesn't kill him is just another point in the unrealistic column right next to Indiana Jones being able to survive a nuclear device that explodes right next to him. And not only does he survive, he doesn't have any scarring, any like thing on his face that would indicate, or even his body, that he just got smashed in the face by a metal pole at 100 miles per hour and thrown off a cliff. But just thought I would interject that there because I completely forgot to mention that in the first part of the review but so Helena's pitching Indiana to help her find the dial which she believes that Indiana Jones and her father lost while they were escaping the train but that was just a lie that Indiana Jones told her when she was young and he reveals to her that he still possesses half the dial so that was another plot point earlier is that Mad Mickelson's character had half of the dial and he wanted the Nazis help to find the other half. During the train sequence, Indiana Jones took his half of the dial from him. And so Indy takes Helena to his archives and shows her the dial. And it's at this time where we see that Mad Mickelson's character has survived and is a top figure in the NASA program. And so the day in question where Indiana Jones is currently teaching, having his retirement party, is the day of his town's celebration of the moon landing, which has just happened. And there's an interesting point here where somebody asks Indiana Jones how he feels about the moon landing, and they kind of portray it as him being a man out of time, somebody who's obsessed with the past and archaeology in a world where everybody's looking to space in the future. And I really wish they would have done more to tell that story, but because I think there's a lot of interesting material there, but they really only give it like a two minutes of screen time. Missed opportunity, I think. But we see Mad Mickelson and his group of... Uh, I guess cronies you would call them. And Madden Mickelson's character here is actually based off of the real-life head of NASA, Werner von Braun, who during World War II was a top Nazi 
that was brought over by the U.S. government and Operation Paperclip to help lead our space program. So once again, the movie, to its credit, is taking a real-life historical thing like Operation Paperclip and incorporating into the plot as to how Mad Mickelson's character, Dr. Voller, managed to stay in a place of importance after World War II. So Dr. Voller maintained his interest in the dial, and he knows, I guess, roughly where it is because the CIA has been helping him chase after it in return for him helping them with the space program. So part of his cronies are actually the U.S. government, which is an interesting, I guess, story for the movie to tell where the U.S. government is helping the Nazis fight Indiana Jones. So don't know what they're trying to do with that, but just an interesting take, I guess, to say the least. So the government and the Nazis tracked down Indiana Jones in his uh, archives while he's showing Helen of the Dial. They shoot some of his co-workers, including a sweet little office lady. And they chase Indiana Jones through the moon landing parade. And during the course of the parade, Helena takes the dial from Indiana Jones. And the Nazis don't catch Indy, obviously. But, so, basically where we're at now. Indy is framed for murder because somebody's killed during the parade. And since the CIA is on the side of the bad guys here, they can just basically manipulate the media to get whatever they want out. So Indiana Jones framed for murder. Helena has the dial and goes to sell it at a black market in Tanzir, which somehow Indiana Jones, thanks to the help from his friend from the first movie, uh, the Egyptian character, realizes that she's going to do, and he just knows when to go to Tangier and meet her the day of this black market auction that she's hosting to sell half the dial. Because it turns out Helena, despite all of her uh, posturing during her lunch with Indy, is really a smuggler who cares about cash more than she does archaeology. Once her true colors are revealed, she tells to Indy numerous times throughout the movie that she's only in it for the cash and that she's not a good person she likes to live life in a way that will make her better off and she doesn't really care what happens to everybody else spoken as a girl who tragically lost her father so dr basil went crazy studying his half of the dial became obsessed with it it kind of had like the wandering effect from lord of the rings where he just spends his whole life chasing after the other half of the dial and putting the two together. And he doesn't say that he wants to become like all-powerful being or anything like that, but he just wants to, for the sake of science, put this artifact together and get the power that it has to the point where he has all kinds of notebooks and stuff that he writes his notes in, trying to dissect his theories on the dial and things of that nature, which Helena has memorized a good bit of what's in his journals. And Indiana Jones uses this as his rationale for why she's really a good person, 
because you don't memorize all of your dead father's work for cash. And she never really gives a good comeback to that. That's just kind of the movie's way of telling you that her hard, by any means necessary, cash over everything uh, facade is really just that. And how deep down she's just a girl who's chasing after her father's passion. But that's the problem in all movies is when they do this. They tell you and don't show you things. The movie is supposed to get you to understand this message by showing you on screen these things play out and not tell you what you're supposed to be feeling. At no point, really, aside from the fact that she memorized her dad's notes, does Helena show any, you know, interest, really, in pursuing any other type of archaeology. She doesn't really give any indication of I'm doing this for my dad. She kind of references it at the end where she tells Indy that she could have used him as a godfather. But like, it's just really not there, at least for me. So I think the movie could have done a better job getting that across if that's the message it was trying to tell. But I mean, it's fine for what it is. I feel like I'm coming across really negative in this review because I think that the movie really could have done a better job of telling a story. I mean, it's fine. The action scenes are cool. The scene's really great at the start of the movie. I think that flashback scene is probably the best part. I mean, the I forgot to mention too earlier, the de-aging that they use on Harrison Ford's face is probably the best use of that technology I've seen to date, where they make him look just like young Harrison Ford, young Indiana Jones. And... I mean, the action's good, it's just, and what happens next is probably the worst example of this. A lot of the action scenes just take up too much time. So, Andy goes to Tangier, sees Helena at the black market auction, the Nazis and the government show up too, another chase scene ensues, and when Helena runs out of the auction, she bumps into somebody from Tangier that apparently is her ex-fiance who she, I guess, hit and quit. And he chases her through the streets of Tangier, her and Indiana Jones both, and Helena has a sidekick named Teddy, who's basically just a rehash of Short Round from Temple of Doom, and serves no real point to the movie. He's just kind of there. I guess the only purpose he serves is to get kidnapped by the Nazis in the third act. But... Other than that, I'm probably not going to mention him again, but just know that there is a character named Teddy who's like a teenage thief sidekick for Helena. Anyways, so the three of them get chased by Helena's ex-boyfriend, fiance, for like 10 minutes of the movie. He's not after the dial. He's not after Indiana Jones. He's just chasing her because she broke off their engagement. That has absolutely nothing to do with the point of the movie. And it's honestly just a waste of time. Sometimes it feels like movies just do what they can to try to hit the two and a half hour mark for some reason. Instead of just telling their story and getting out of the way. So that's just probably the worst part of the movie I think. Is this fight scene that just takes up a lot of time 
for absolutely no purpose. <laughs> so after that fight scene, Indy, Helena, and Teddy regroup, decide to put their differences aside for the moment, and just try to find the second half of the dial. The Nazis stole their half of the dial in the auction scene. So they're having to just do what they can to play catch up. And during this, when they have their half of the dial, where the CIA tells Baller that they're done helping him, he's evil, they've killed U.S. civilians, like basically they're out. And the Nazis pretty much just killed them all, which you think the CIA would have thought that through before just deciding to break up with the Nazis. Like, hey, maybe they're not going to take this that well. But they don't think ahead, and the Nazis kill all the CIA agents. So now it's just the Nazis who are the bad guys from this point on. And Indy and the teams goal now is to try to find the second half of the dial before the Nazis can since at least if they have the second half they'll be able to stop the Nazis from reuniting the dial. So there's this thing they call the Graphicos which is basically a way that they can, it's like a map to the second half of the dial and the Graphicos is in the shipwreck off the coast of Greece. Which, once you know, Indiana Jones just happens to have a scuba diving buddy in Greece. That can help them out. Plot convenience is one of those things where I guess it makes sense that an archaeologist would know a Greek scuba diver. But it's just kind of a little too convenient for my liking. But it is what it is. It gets us to the next part of the movie. So they go. They dive down. And they get the Graphicos the map but when they come back up Indy his scuba diving friend and Helena are the ones who go underwater and the Nazis are there wouldn't you know and they've killed all the rest of the boat crew the next scene is actually my second favorite scene in the movie after the initial opening fight scene with the Nazis on the train and that is the Nazis have Jones Helena and Jones's Greek friend kidnapped they shoot the Greek friend to try to get Indy to decipher the Graphicos for them because of course it's written in like an ancient language. He refuses. Helena volunteers and she reads it to them and gets them all excited about how to break down the code because of course it's written in the form of a riddle. And while she's kind of getting the Nazis to think out loud about what the riddle could mean, how to break it apart. She indicates to Indy that she has a stick of dynamite in her pocket that she's lighting, and he actually gets her help to light, or she gets his help to light. And it leads to an explosion where, of course, she at least this time they have her take the dynamite out of her pocket and throw it at the Nazis before it blows up. But... She takes the Graphicos from Valor before it explodes, and he manages to get away from the explosion too, but it creates a distraction. Her and Indy get away with the Graphicos, and they told the Nazis that what the message said was 
the second half, the missing half of the dial, was hidden in the library of Alexandria. So they're going to Alexandria to find the second half of the dial, which is well, that's, that's what the Nazis think. When they get by themselves on the boat, Helen and Indy realize that there's a hidden message in addition to the fake message on top, because of course there is. So they melt the wax that has the original message on it, and what do they find? The real directions to the second half of the dial, which leads them to Archimedes, who was the person who made the dial. They find his tomb, <clears throat> and while they're there, of course, the Nazis realized when the boat doesn't go in the direction of Alexandria that Helena was lying to them, and so they follow Indy and Helena to the tomb of Archimedes, which is something you think they would have realized would happen, but the movie pays no thought at all to having them explain that, yeah, we know the Nazis are going to follow us, but if we beat them there, it won't matter. Or, hey, maybe we should make a smoke screen to throw the Nazis off. They just don't even bring up that thought. So while in Archimedes' tomb, they see engraved on it propellers, and they open it up, and they find that his corpse has a watch on it, which, of course, it would be impossible for a Greek mathematician from the 200s BC to, to have a watcher to know what a propeller was or an airplane was to engrave on his tomb so that kind of makes you think for a second and before you can think too hard about it the nazis show up they shoot indy they chase off helena and teddy and they get the second half of the dial because indy and helena stupidly led them right to it indy getting shot is another unrealistic thing because he he gets shot and they address it and then like in the movie time it what has to be at least an hour goes by and he's still just sitting there talking walking fighting like doing his indiana jones thing all the while he's been shot in the shoulder and he's like a 70 something year old man so another example of just the unrealistic action movie level that this movie has that the previous Indiana Jones movies did not have. For some unexplained reason, the Nazis take Indiana Jones captive instead of just killing him like you think they would a hated enemy. It's not like they use him for scientific expertise to help decipher the dial or anything like that. On the contrary, he gives them one piece of scientific advice and they ignore it much to their calamity. So while they load up Indy on an airplane where Helena stows away on the plane and Teddy who is like 13 can somehow fly another plane to trail after him and Dr. Voller tells Indy that his grand plan is to use the dial to travel back in time because the dial in real life was used as a compass but in this movie can also be used to detect not only location but fissures in time, which if you do it just right, can create a time portal to take you back in time to 
a date of your location or a date of your choosing. So what Haller wants to do is go back in time to 1939 to kill Hitler. He blames the Nazis' loss in World War II on Hitler's poor leadership. So it puts the good guys of the movie in a weird position to where what they're trying to do is save Hitler's life. Now the movie frames this as a good thing because Dr. Waller is like, it's only because of Hitler that the Nazis lost World War II and if we had better leadership we could have won. But still, it's just a weird situation where the good guys are trying to save Hitler. And Dr. Waller never specifies what good leadership he wants the Nazis to have. Like he never says, I'm going to go back in time, kill Hitler, and take his place as the Fuhrer to lead the Nazis to victory. He just kind of wants to kill Hitler, and some vague better Nazi will lead them to victory in World War II. While Indy is listening to this plan, he gets the realization that the coordinates on the dial that they can put in to help them get to 1939 will be off because Archimedes, who was from the 200s BC, would have had no way of knowing about continental drift, which is where over time land masses shift, and so the coordinates on the dial are off. And he tells Baller this, and Baller, there's like a minute countdown they have before they hit in the time fissure and go back in time. And with 10 seconds left, Baller's thinking over what Indy says, and he tells them to abort the mission. But at 10 seconds left, it's too late. The time portal sucks them in. And once you know, the time that they actually end up going to is the 212 BC Siege of Syracuse, where Archimedes created the dial in the first place. They never explain how they ended up going from 1939 to 212 BC, like how the coordinates were off that much. Awfully convenient, but try not to think too hard about it. So they get there. The Roman army, who is laying siege to the Greek army because they're trying to ca like capture Syracuse, they see the plane and they think it's a dragon, so they shoot it down. And Indiana and Helena, who's revealed herself as a stowaway by this point, fight the Nazis off. They get a parachute and they jump out of the plane. And the plane crashes with all the Nazis, including Dr. Waller, inside. It's a really lame ending for what otherwise was a really good villain. Dr. Waller is a really intimidating Nazi scientist. Mads Mikkelsen does a great job of portraying him as somebody who is cold, stern, intimidating, but has the air of an intellectual as well. Now, why he was able to survive getting hit in the face with a metal pole and falling like hundreds of feet off a cliff, but he can't survive a plane crash. No idea. But aside from that, I think Dr. Waller was a great villain and it's really underwhelming how they killed him off. He doesn't get like a big showdown with Indiana Jones. He doesn't even really get like shown dying. As far as I can recall, they have 
a scene where he's on the plane as it's going down and they realize that you know he just kind of accepts his fate and then later Archimedes goes by the plane crash and takes a watch off of his wrist and that's of course the watch that Archimedes's corpse is wearing in his tomb so that explains how they get that and it also explains of course the plane coming in through the time fissure is what Archimedes depicts on the engravings on his tomb. So it explains how all the futuristic stuff from Archimedes' tomb comes to be. But a very underwhelming way for a really good villain to go out. Archimedes finds Indiana Jones and Helena, and he tries to get them to help his people defeat the Romans, which Helena says they can't do because it would change the course of history, yada yada, all the time travel stuff. But Indiana Jones, who they finally address his bullet wound again, has decided that he wants to stay back in time. He's surrounded by this big historical event that he spent years studying, and he just wants to die happy, surrounded by the history that he loves. And it's like a couple minute long debate between him and Helena, who doesn't want him to go. She says he doesn't belong here. He needs to go back in time where they can save him. He says, what does he have to go back to? Of course, alluding to the fact that he's divorced, his son's dead, he's retired from his job. So he pretty much has nothing to look forward to at home. And so he's resigned himself to dying in the past that he loves but then Helena knocks him out and he wakes up and he's back in 1969. There are two problems with this scene. One is from a narrative standpoint, the other is from a logical standpoint. Narrative always comes first so I'll break that down first. From a narrative standpoint it would have been the perfect way to write off Indiana Jones to have him go back in time and live in the past or die in the past, whichever way you could take it. There are two routes I think they could have gone with it. That would have been interesting. The first would be that he simply just goes in the past to die, surrounded by the history that he loves. Which, honestly, would have been a great send-off to a character who's one of the most iconic in movie history. The other route that they could have gone with was that he goes back in time and... He somehow manages to find a way to cure his gunshot wound. I mean, he was shot in his right shoulder, which isn't great, but if they can stop the bleeding, there's no vital organs over there. So, theoretically, somebody who has been on as many adventures as Indiana Jones may know how to deal with a bullet wound. If he could get that doctored using some technique that he can teach the ancients to do, then... He could have left a writing on some artifact, somehow like leave a message to let Helena know that he recovered and he lived out his days in peace in the past. And she can find the artifact, maybe even the dial itself. She finds it, knows Indy recovered and lived out a happy life. Or like, and he's like 70, so say he lived 15 more years in the past. Yay. Indy has a poetic send-off, and before she leaves him in the past, he could have even told her that 
he doesn't feel the need to go back because he knows that deep down she is her father's daughter, has a love of archaeology for the love of the field itself, not for cash, and that she will be the one going forward to keep the archaeology field in good hands and to continue to chase after all these fantastic historical documents and artifacts that he spent his entire life pursuing. And so he could, you know, theoretically pass the mantle or figuratively pass the mantle of being the great treasure hunter to Wombat Helena. And, you know, they could even make future movies, spin-off movies with Helena if they so wanted to while giving Indiana Jones a proper good send-off. So I think that would have been a beautiful way to end the story of a historic and legendary film hero like Indiana Jones, but that's not what they do. Which brings me to the logical issue with the question. So the time fissure that they traveled through to go back in time was in the sky. And of course, the plane they traveled through it to get to the past and crashed the second they made it through the fissure. So how they managed to get up back through there, I have no idea. The movie probably has no idea. They don't explain it. He just wakes up in a bed in 1969. Now, this is on top of the fact that Helena knocked out Indy. So I guess what they're going for is that Teddy flew his plane in through the time warp too. So I guess they used that to get back to the future, which is a completely different, but arguably just as good movie franchise. Also produced by Steven Spielberg. But anyways, that would mean that she had to drag Indy's cold, knocked out body all the way back to Teddy's plane, when part of the reason she was freaking out about Indy refusing to go in the first place was the fact that the fissure was closing as they were speaking. So I guess somehow she managed to do that before the fissure closed, when in reality that would take like at least 30 minutes. But whatever, they end up back in 1969, where Helena called Marion, Indy's ex-wife, to come check on him. And they wake up. He doesn't realize that Marion is there. It's just Helena. They have a heart-to-heart. And Teddy and his Egyptian friend leave as Marion walks in with a bag of groceries. Her and Indy romantically reunite. It kind of alludes to the fact that they're back together as the movie ends. So, in summary, I would recommend go seeing the movie. I know I criticize it a good bit, but on the whole, if you don't think too hard about it, it's fun to watch. It's Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, like... I would give it as probably a 6.7 out of 10. It's fine. It's entertaining, but apparently, and this is the big news story coming out of the movie, is it was a huge box office bomb. As of right now, it's made $336.9 million on a budget of 300 to 400 million. So it's barely made any money and it may have even lost money at the box office and it's so bad that Kathleen Kennedy the president of Lucasfilm may be resigning over it which as many Star Wars fans know 
has been a day that many people have been wanting to see for a long time. The latest reports are that Kathleen Kennedy will not be renewing her contract with Disney as the president of Lucasfilm, but at the moment that's just speculation. So we'll see how that story plays out. But it's looking like Indiana Jones 5 could be the reason Kathleen Kennedy is finally given the axe as the president of Lucasfilm. And hopefully somebody like Dave Filoni will get to take her place and lead Lucasfilm into a bright future. <laughs> Way different than the dark days of the last 11 years of Kathleen Kennedy has been president and overseeing the terrible Star Wars sequel trilogy, an Indiana Jones bomb, and just a horrible, horrible president of Lucasfilm. Now, another notable thing about this movie is John Williams did the score for it, and it will be his last movie. The legendary composer is finally retiring. He's like almost 80 years old at this point, and he's putting to bed the greatest musical composition movie career of all time. He did the score for Star Wars, Superman, E.T., and pretty much any movie that defined your childhood franchise, then there's a good shot that John Williams is the one that did the movie. So, to conclude this podcast review, the movie was fine. Does it live up to the high standards of the original Indiana Drones trilogy? No, it doesn't. Is it garbage that should be never viewed again? No. There's a lot of things the movie could have done to have lived up to the standards set by the original trilogy. I think that a much better movie would have been if they focused on the Holy Lance and instead of making Indiana Jones fight the Nazis and retread what we've already seen, they could have made a contemporary movie about him trying to fight the Cold War in 1969, maybe, after he found out that the Holy Lance the Nazis had was a fake. It turned out that the Russians had taken it from the Nazis after a major battle in World War II and that the Soviets are trying to do something with the Holy Lance that helps them win the Cold War. I think that would have been a much better story. They should have kept Shia LaBeouf around to tell the story of Indy's son taking over his mantle. But even without a sidekick, they could have just had Indiana Jones on a solo mission kicking butt and taking names against the Russians which we haven't seen before, instead of the Nazis, which we've seen three times now. So I think that would have made for a lot better movie, a lot more new and exciting content. But we got what we got. I would recommend going to see it. It's a fun two and a half hours. And that's all I've got to say about that. So we'll see y'all next time with either an episode of The Water Cooler Sports or maybe another movie review. We'll see you then.